Hey, and welcome to Euronurse. We meet every Saturday at 9 a.m. Central Time. Glad to see everybody showing up here today for this great talk. Um, if you're watching us on YouTube, great. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and that like button. If this is your first time visiting us, be sure to visit our website at euronurse.com where you can find out more about us and how to join and be a part of the program. Also, this is your opportunity to look back at all of our old programs. We've got those all listed um, starting at the most recent one, going back for last year's programs and everything going forward. So it's your one spot, shop spot to catch up with us. We have a really great program for you today. And that program, you know, we're going to follow our typical um, format that we're going to take general questions. Feel free to use the Q&A box to have any questions that you might think of. So we'll go ahead and look at those first. And then we'll follow that up with our favorite, our shared stories. And then we're going to get into our main talk today. Again, that talk is going to be given by Paula Wagner. Paula was a attendee not too long ago, and she's going to be talking on pediatric urology. So there's a subject that we have not covered. I'm really anxious to hear more about the uh, wonderful world of kids. Um, so we're going to get ready to get into our favorite stories here just in a moment. Um, before we do that, I did get a question that came in from Janine Foster, or at least a comment. She says, I'm a registered nurse. I work for the VA. I'm licensed in New York, but I've transferred to North Carolina and have multi-state license as well. So there you have it. We do have some nurses that are working with multiple licenses in different states. I think it's not that hard of a, a issue to get somebody to get licensed in another state. I know Indiana, it, you have to just kind of fill out some forms. It's not like you have to take the boards again. Well, to get licensed as a nurse practitioner, it's a lot of hours and money, and it is a pretty lengthy process. Okay. It, so maybe would... not as an RN, but as, as a nurse practitioner. Yeah. Gotcha. So let's get to announcing our talking about our, uh, before we get our program going, let's uh, introduce all of our attendees that we have today. We've got four great panelists. Uh, Paula, why don't you go first since you're new to the group? Hi, I'm Paula. I like to be called PJ. I'm a nurse practitioner. I see adults part-time and children part-time, and I've been a nurse practitioner for about 25 years, and I'm still in the same university job, although I do cover Shriners Hospital for children, and I'm at a university hospital, and I'm going to talk today about urology. Great. And I think most of you know who I am, Vic Sinise. I'm the founder and producer and host for Euronurse. And I've been a urology nurse my whole career too. So, and Andrea, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? My name's Andrea Strong. I'm now a nurse practitioner in the urology clinic. I mainly work with adults and I have about a decade of experience as a nurse. I did inpatient urology, outpatient urology, outpatient float pool. So I'm happy to be here today. Great. And Lori. Good morning, everyone. My name is Larry Atkinson. I'm a certified urology registered nurse. Um, I've been a urology nurse for 24 years. I currently work um, for Northwestern in Geneva, Illinois, and I'm glad to be here as well. Great. That's what makes this program so successful that we have all these great panelists to kind of bounce things uh, over and talk about things. So again, feel free to use that Q&A box anytime you have a question. And as we get into our talk with Paula, we're going to go ahead and take any questions that you might have for her. And uh, so you can fill those out at any time. But we're going to start off with a 
little bit of a shared story. I'm going to kick it off with a pediatric story. So I did a little bit, I mean, a little bit of pediatric urology when we first started. We had a pediatric urologist join our group early on. And he, uh, so I had gotten the lucky straw to work with him. And so I got to work with him for a year. Now, I got to tell you, I, I, God bless you, those folks out there that like to do pediatrics. It's not me. I don't like to work with sick kids, love kids, but not sick ones. But anyway, I did learn a lot about it. But one of the big lessons I'm going to teach you uh, is that when you're taking care of kids, you're taking care of a family. And I found this out as the doctor was explaining a, a procedure, that a scrotal procedure that was going to be done to this couple's uh, son. And he's talking about it. And our rooms are set up where we have each room. We're lucky enough to have a bathroom attached to it. So works really nice if you're a urology practice to have each one with its own bathroom. And when the doctor's going through it, he's explaining on, pointing on the scrotum, you know, this is where the cut's going to be. And the father gets up and he goes in the bathroom. Well, I never thought anything of it, right? He probably just had to go to the bathroom. Mom's still there listening to the doctor. All of a sudden, boom, <laughs> this noise. The guy hit the wall. He had a vasovagal response to this description of the procedure. Now, fortunately, he wasn't injured, and he just, but he did pass out. It was kind of a scary moment, but it, I learned a lesson. You got to really, you know, pay attention to the family members as well as to the kids. The kids were the easier part. You know, it's these parents who panic over this stuff. So that's my pediatric big experience story. Lori, you had a story for us today, right? I do, although I definitely don't do pediatrics either, and I don't choose to. I have five kids, and that's enough pediatric for me. <laughs> I'm done with it. Um, so my story actually happened yesterday. We had a patient who had a, a prostatectomy. And of course, as urology people, we know that you're not supposed to take out a catheter after a prostatectomy. But the patient ended up going to the emergency room, and lo and behold, they take the catheter out. But when they put the catheter back in, they blew up the balloon in the urethra. Nightmare. It was awful. So, of course, this patient, we had a lot of concern for him. The doctor had a lot of concern for us. So, obviously, he told him, call anytime if you're having a problem. So, yesterday, he called in the morning. The, the wife called and said, oh, my gosh, he's got all this blood in the urine, and it's squirting out the sides of the catheter and so forth. And so, we had the patient come in. Um, just for an evaluation. And my other nurse is a little bit newer and he's like, maybe he should see the doctor. I said, well, we can, you know, kind of figure it out. And I let the doctor, I know what was going on. And, and of course, first thing he said is don't take out the catheter. I'm, I know, I know, I know I'm not taking out the catheter. So the guy comes in, his bag is completely empty, but I'm, but I said, did you just drain it? And they said, yes, they just drained it. Okay. Well, I could see a little bit of yellow clear urine coming out of that, that, the tube. Um, and so the wife's like, Oh no, 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 I've got a picture of it. So she shows me this picture and I'm like, that looks normal. And she goes, she goes, Oh, it's all bloody. And I go, did he take a little Brown pill that starts with a P? <laughs> yeah. I took it last night. I said, that medication turns the urine orange. His urine is orange. There's nothing wrong with it. Oh no, no, no nobody told us that. And I'm like, yeah, they don't tell you that. And that's unfortunate because they're thinking it's all this blood. And of course the stuff that was coming out of the sides of the catheter was bladder spasm. So it was all good. Oh yeah. That, that's a good reminder because you do forget sometimes to warn patients about 
the change in the color of the urine. And that's uh, and their contacts. People forget about the contacts. I always, always ask the patients if they wear contacts because it can actually discolor those as well. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. Mucous I have a lot of mucous membrane. I have a lot of patients, um, females with incontinence and males with incontinence. So I always warn them it'll stain any clothing it touches. So don't wear your, don't wear your good pants. <laughs> Yeah, we have uh, a, a lot of the patients, the uh, the docs will say, oh, yeah, tell them that you'll pick up some Peridium or some Azo in the, over the counter in the pharmacy just to have on board in case they have bladder spasms. Um, <laughs> I always tell the patients, I said, listen, save it if you're really uncomfortable because it's going to make your life miserable. I said, it's going to state everything. Your wife's going to be upset with you. And I says, you know, it, it, it may work, but I says, don't use it unless you have to. Yeah, our exam tables show pyridium. <laughs> it, it doesn't even come out of the exam table, even if you wipe it up right away. Betadine as well. Iodine stains exam tables. Oh, yeah. We switched over to benzoconium. I'm saying yeah. BZK because it's clear and doesn't stain everything. And it's as, as effective as an anest uh, antiseptic. Yeah. Hey, well, I always wondered. Oh, sorry. I always wondered it with betadine. Why, after you put it on and you get it on the tissue or whatever, why it turns purple? Does anybody I, know? I, well, I, I don't know this, but when I used to work peds oncology, I think it's the uh, aseptic part of it. You know, oh, just okay. like the, the literature shows, betadine really has to dry, which is why when we do a midstream clean catch, it, it dries for like 10 or 15 minutes. So I, that's what I suspect. It's sort of like that violet, that violet color that, um, you might use to for to find a nectopic ureter when you cysto someone or hmm. that's what I think. Always wondered. I think it has to do with oxygen oxidation when it hits the air. Probably the oxygen reacts with it. That's a guess, but you know, chemistry or college chemistry. What can I tell you? Rebecca said in this comment, "I'm out of urology for the time being, and I was talking with my coworkers about kidney stones." Didn't think anything of it because it's standard talk from where I'm from, but apparently not where I am now because the guy in question got uncomfortable very quickly. Whoops. So, yep. If you leave urology, it's a different world. That's why all of us have stayed in urology because it's the fun place to be. Yeah. That's why you get a catheter in your prostatic urethra, not your bladder. Yep. Yep. If you're in the community. Yes, absolutely. That's why you come to the pros. Um, so I don't see any other questions. We got to think our, our shared stories out of the way. So Paula, I'm going to let you switch over to your uh, shared screen and take it from here. So my little thing at the bottom went away that said shared screen. Uh, it was me, there a second ago. Let me make sure. My little icon. It should still be there. Let's see. So you don't have one that says share screen right now. I do not. Do not. I did a minute ago. You have all the other icons? No, I have no icons. Yeah, that's something with your program where it dropped those. Well, tell me what I should do, Mr. Techno. Because <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. I would bring your bring your mouse up to the or down to the bottom. Oh, there it goes. Okay. I'm 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 all over it now. Yeah, yeah. I was just checking you are a co-host, so you should be able to do it. Yay. Perfect. Okay. 
Okay, I'm going to start my talk. So, you know, just so everybody sort of knows, the things I'm going to talk about itself could be one talk, like vesicoureteral reflux could be an hour. So this is a talk that I use for pediatricians, and I had to take like 30 slides out, and I have 76. So some of them I'll sort of breeze over just in, in the nature of, of time. So I already introduced myself. I work with Eric Kershock, who is a fellowship trained pediatric urologist. And um, it's just he and I at, at this point. So, um, and we, we work pretty well together. So I see kids um, two or three days a week. Uh-oh, how do I go forward? Um, you oh, can hit you. Yeah. So what is pedurology? Um, GU problems, kidney, ureter, bladder, urethra, testicles, ovaries, reproductive tract, uh, genitals, just some of, some of the things we see. Um, we follow kids, especially if they're born with a congenital condition, sometimes into adulthood, but things we follow, um, congenital abnormalities, hydronephrosis, multicystic dysplastic kidney, ectopic ureter, reflux, megaure, incontinence, on the set of testes, hypospadias, intersex, inguinal hernia, just, just to name a few things that we see. The first thing I'm going to talk about is vesicoureteral reflux. So if you see a child who has had a febrile UTI, we do an ultrasound and a VCUG. So you'll see on this kiddo, they have bilateral grade five reflux. So for those of you who don't know, all the contrast dye should stay in the bladder and not go up the upper tracks. Urine is meant to retrograde down and it'll go back the wrong way. Um, and so 20 to 50% of kids present with a UTI. Well, who might not present with UTI? Well, we know that pregnant moms get their first ultrasound usually between 16 and 18 weeks. You can see the kidney pretty well. So we see lots of kids born with hydronephrosis that get put on prophylactic antibiotics and then get a VCUG. So they really have never had a UTI. So that's the other percentage of, of, of kids who've never had an infection that actually have had reflux. Um, males tend to have a worse reflux that gets better faster. Uh, and we don't always need to fix it. A lot of kids will outgrow reflux. Um, here are giving you some statistics about um, ethnicity. Um, Things to consider, secondary reflux, kids with neurogenic bladder, valves, extrophy, dysfunctional voiding. So these are kids who um, we don't often fix their reflux because it's usually a, a sort of different mechanism. And there's two thoughts about why kids have reflux. One is that this tunnel where their ureter tunnels in the trigone of the bladder is not long enough. And the second thought is because it's not long enough, the um, mucosal behind it is, is quite weak. And then um, here we're talking about the prenatal hydronephrosis. You can see um, this is a kidney turned sideways and the black um, fluid is actually um, urine. And so if you see a kiddo born with hydronephrosis, also it buys you um, a VCUG. Here, this is demonstrating reflux just on one side. You can have reflux on one side, you can have it on both. There's a universal grading system, one to five. Um, usually by the time you get to one, you're sort of done because one just urine retrogrades up the ureter and not to the kidney. 
and um, you sort of see the degree with um, looking at the VCUG. You can look at it with the family. Uh, things we rule out, um, you know, we ask everybody about voiding, about their bowel history. We might do a nuclear scan. We might do an IVP. We look at their blood pressure. Um, there is a grade, you know, what most parents want to know is, okay, my kid has reflux. What are the chance they'll outgrow it? Um, if you guys go to deflux.com, they have a really good um, graph that shows what age your child was diagnosed, what grade of reflux they have, and in general, when we might expect them to outgrow it. <clears throat> so again, this is a, a, a graph of a, of a little different nature. So how do we treat kids who've had reflux? Well, the goal is to prevent urinary tract infections and to prevent febrile UTIs that can cause scars on the kidney. So we use um, a couple of medicines for prophylaxis. We start kids out on amoxicillin. Once uh, they reach at two months of age, their liver has matured, we change them to Bactrim. I use a lot of nitrofured Antoin. I like Keflex, but the pharmacy will just fill Keflex two weeks at a time. And so it can be problematic in terms of compliance. Uh, an ultrasound and VCUG, uh, indications for surgery, scarring, Despite being on the prophylactic antibiotic, the child gets uh, several um, infections, um, medical noncompliance if we're worried about um, a, ch a child maybe in the foster care system about changing multiple homes and they have high-grade reflux, we, we might think about um, correcting it. There's two ways to correct it surgically. There's intravesical and extravesical, so both just surgical techniques. Um, Oh, um, so they just showed a brief video. There's something called a sting procedure that um, is a non-surgical way to correct reflux where a small pediatric scope is put in the urethra and then you can see the ureters and the substance is two naturally occurring sugars. And so right at the, where the ureter meets the bladder, the substance is injected and um, it's, it's been around for about 20 years, but it's best for low-grade reflux, and a kid cannot have an ectopic ureter or a duplicated system because it just traditionally doesn't work. Uh, sometimes we put a little bit of deflux in a urinary diversion that maybe is, is leaking, um, but uh, deflux is a non-surgical option to treat reflux. Uh, prenatal hydronephrosis. As we know, we don't get radiation anymore with ultrasounds. Lots and lots of pregnant women have ultrasounds. So we see a lot of um, pregnant moms that come that say my baby has hydronephrosis. What does that mean? Uh, we also grade hydronephrosis depending on the degree um, of the, the fluid in, in the ureter. So, you know, here we have the parenchyma where the urine's made and then we have the, um, the drain and the calyces of the, the, uh, the kidney. This talks about embryology, about um, GFR and how much uh, urine the baby makes. And this is really, this is sort of for when we see pregnant women and um, we talk about the risk factor and where they need to deliver and what needs to happen prenatal and postnatal. Uh, on this, this slide, uh, most women have their first ultrasound at 16 to 18 weeks. The kidney can be pretty well seen. Um, on this slide, 18 to 20 weeks, 90% of kidneys can be seen. Generally, if a high-risk GYN is following somebody and the, the baby has hydro, they have a lot, a lot of ultrasounds that they, that they come with. And then, of course, 
postnatally, we recommend that you just not do an ultrasound the, the first 24 hours of the baby's life because often the amount of dilation is under, under um, reported and babies are dehydrated and often they're not making a lot of urine that first 24 hours. And it'll, um, it'll fool you to think they, they have a lesser degree of hydronephrosis. Um, this is the grade of hydro at zero to four. So hopefully if you're a pediurologist, you have pediatric radiology and we're using this universal grading system. We look at everything with our own eyes because we see kids from, from everywhere. We see kids from eight hours away. So everybody has to bring their own films on a disc. And then we show the parent the films because you might have a report that says mild to moderate hydronephrosis. Well, you're sort of like looking at the grading system. What does that mean? What's mild to someone might be minimal to someone else. Um, so, but we always look at films as you guys probably do. We were, we never look at reports for anything. We look at films. Here we're showing some um, uh, hydronephrosis. Up in the corner in the left is a little bit of a dilated pelvis. And in the lower right, you see a pelvis and some calyces. Here it's just getting worse. You can see less parenchyma. Um, what are some other things we see? We see UPJs where there's an obstruction in the ureter. We see mega ureters, reflux, ectopic ureter, ureteral seals, posterior urethral valves, multicystic dysplastic kidney, prune belly, all things that can cause dilation of the kidney. Um, there are um, at Stanford and San Francisco, and I think we've done one kid at Davis. Um, if you have a baby that you know has a spinal defect or megacystic colon, there are some institutions that are shunting um, moms, uh, the baby in utero. I think the literature really shows that the outcome is the same, whether the kiddo gets shunted or not, in terms of their bladder. Like they, it, it might help in other areas, but in terms of bladder, um, it, it doesn't, you know, they're still born with hydronephrosis and a neurogenic bladder. Oh, here, here it talks a little bit about some of the literature out there. Outcome of data controls does not include fetal early loss. Present outcomes are similar to postnatal experience. And then they're showing, we're showing a, a neonate with some hydro. And then six weeks later, the right kidney, the left kidney. Um, and then talking about uh, reflux, males, I think I talked about earlier, males usually have a higher greater reflux. They usually outgrow it sooner. Here's a picture of a UPJ obstruction that can also cause hydronephrosis. And you see where, um, where the, it's narrow just outside the pelvis where it goes down to the ureter. And it's just not that it's narrow, it doesn't peristalsis well. So the ureter moves urine a lot like the gut. And um, about 50% of kids who have a UPJ will outgrow it. And so it depends on the amount of hydronephrosis and is it worse and their age and is it making them sick as to who we, who we fix and who we don't fix. It's rare that we fix a baby. We usually um, get a couple ultrasounds to see, has it gotten better, has it gotten worse? Um, ultrasounds, we follow a lot of kids with ultrasounds. Uh, we probably would do a MAG-3 on a kiddo with a UPJ to see how the kidney drains and works. We know it's gonna drain slower because it's dilated and obstructed. Um, but we want to know, is it clinically obstructed? We, we don't want to lose function watching a, a kidney. Um, 
most are, most are found prenatal ultrasound. So you might see um, one kidney that's very, very dilated and the other kidney is not. Certainly you would do a VCUG. They could have reflux. They could have a UPJ. Uh, UPJ is more common in males. Um, generally on the left side, they can be bilaterally where um, they both need to be fixed. We never fix them both at the same time. Um, talking a little bit about the adynamic segment. So that segment that's narrow just doesn't move urine well. And, and of course it's, it's narrow. So it's causing um, dilation of the kidney and over time you can lose um, function. The other time you'll see a UPJ is if it's not picked up when babies are young, um, maybe the mom didn't have any ultrasounds or had an ultrasound at 16 weeks and they didn't see the kidneys well. We see it in adolescents that go to a movie. Maybe they'll go to a Star Wars movie and see a movie that's really long in duration and have a, a, a big slushy and wake up in the middle of the night with a lot of renal colic pain and pain on their side. And of course, then they get put in a CT scan because we don't know, is it their bowel, is it their ovary? And uh, we find this big uh, pelvis and a symptomatic kid. So that's the other time it, it presents. Here we're showing um, an IVP. We still do a, quite a bit of IVPs in pedurology. Um, this is a good picture of an IVP of showing this narrow segment right here of the ureter that connects to the pelvis. Here is an IVP with delayed images. Uh, ways we follow them, again, we might do nuclear scans. A nuclear scan is probably the most invasive test we do, involves a Foley, involves an IV, uh, we do give Lasix halfway through. Kids need a general sedation with a pediatric uh, anesthesiologist. So we might do a nuclear scan to determine function. And certainly if it gets better, the hydro, uh, we may never do another um, scan. Reasons to do surgery, loss of func function, increasing in the dilation. If it's clinically obstructed, we don't wanna lose function watching a kidney. Here we're talking about the surgery where that segment of the kidney is removed and you can see it's sewn back together. Um, usually when a kid has a UPJ uh, repair, they will have either an internalized stent or an externalized stent, a little um, drippy stent coming out the flank incision. Uh, older kids, they do often do older kids robotically. So we do do older kids robotically and depending on their girth, um, but it, technically, I, I think it's a very challenging surgery to do it robotically when they're, when they're a bit older. Um, this talks about some articles um, that some really support um, post-operative pain and anesthesia and antibiotics and medicine. Another thing we see a lot in urology is hypospadias. So usually hypospadias is found in the nursery. And it's classic because you see they have, it almost looks like the baby, the little boy is partially circumcised. They'll have, um, the foreskin will be detached from the, the glands. And here you'll see this hooded foreskin and there, um, the meatus is actually um, right here. So you see it when they were embryologically, it wanted to be at the tip, but this is sort of a blind ending pit. And this is where the baby urinates. Whoops. Uh, we have a classification of hydronephrosis, and um, often when you examine a baby, when they, when they present at two or three months, it's sometimes really hard to tell because um, sometimes they'll have some um, webbing at the scrotum, and what you think might be an anterior 
when it's released is actually a mid shaft, but um, we have a nice handout on hypospadias. But these are all the places that you can urinate and where the meatus can be on the um, external anatomy. Generally, um, I occasionally I see adults who come with hypospadias. They've moved here from a different country and it's never been fixed and they don't have any meatal stenosis and they have 20 kids and, but generally, unless it's very mild, we, we recommend fixing it because usually the meatus the child has doesn't grow with them. And um, a tube is made to bring it up as close to the tip as possible that, that's safe um, for meatal stenosis. Um, here is a glandular hypospadias, a coronal. So the child urinates right here. You can see the meatus wanted to be there but the child urinates out of this little wink down here. Here's a subcoronal. So just showing you some of the, um, here's a mid-shaft hypospadias. Here's a penoscrotal. The child actually urinates down here. There, you can see the hooded foreskin and here's the glands. Uh, scrotal hypospadias, you can see down in the scrotum there, they urinate here. Uh, often there's something called cordy and a parent may say, as we know, kids don't have their, their full testosterone, but usually they'll have tactile erections. I'm cold, I have to urinate. We induce an erection in the, in the OR of every child that has hypospadias, because a lot of kids will have a cordy that can be underappreciated. And so every child is given an induced an erection to see if they have cordy, because it's repaired during the hypospadias. Uh, something called megameatis, where, um, the meatal opening is wide, or it actually looks like a fish mouth. Often megameatus, we, we leave it alone because as we know, anything we do surgically, anything I say that's man-made can have stenosis, can, have, um, can open, can have a fistula. And if you're born with a megameatus, you know, no one is probably gonna know. You're, you're certainly gonna be uncircumcised and unless you're marry a urologist. But I suspect this megameatus is, is being fixed because you can see cosmetically, it, you know, it, it probably, when, when it's spread apart the glands, it, it's, it, it probably is not so appealing cosmetically. Uh, here they're showing um, a megameatus right here. Uh, here they're showing a good example of a post-op hypo. And you can see this is a post-op where they have a fistula. So, the, the skin is closed, but look, they're urinating right here. Here, as you can see, the suture line and the meatus right there. Here again, bad example, good example. You can see uh, they're urinating here. Here, they're urinating here. And again, uh, oh wow, this is really a bad example. So you can see um, here, they maybe have used some skin maybe from the thigh or put a graft on. Here are the testicles. And here is um, a good example. Again, this child has some stenosis and uh, some discoloration. Here is a, a kid with a good example. And again, it just, again, lots of pictures of bad examples, good examples. I, I will say often with megameatis, I tell parents, when the child gets through their post-op period and the swelling all goes away in the months to come, certainly they're circumcised because they use the foreskin. So you really can't leave the foreskin intact with hypospadias. They'll just look like they're circumcised. You won't, no one will ever know that they even had hypospadias.
Uh, this is an example. We have some twins in our practice, and here they are post-op, both typospadias. So they, lo they look really good. You can see, I call this like the turkey gobbler effect. They still have some swelling of the penile foreskin, especially this little guy. That just will get better with time. It almost looks kind of shaggy. And uh, I always say it's a dependent organ. It hangs just like if you have a scroll injury, it, you have swelling for a long, long time. But these two little guys look pretty good. I want to say, I think we have uh, triplets in our practice that all three of the babies have had um, hypospadias. Hypospadias happens in about one of 250 to 500 children, runs in families. We think that maybe if you're exposed to um, progesterone, you have a higher risk. And uh, what that might mean is a mom maybe is on some progesterone suppositories because she's had a lot of miscarriages. Um, but you know, it's, it's repairable hypospadias. So again, the showing us a picture of the twins. Um, advances in hypospadias, less complications, better magnification. We'll often do um, three injections of testosterone pre-op for severe hypospadias. We do 20 milligrams one month apart with the last injection being um, a month before the surgery. It depends on, um, on when the degree of hypospadias, when we recommend fixing it. We often will see a baby at two or three months, not because it needs to be fixed, but because um, parents are often really concerned about hypospadias. Maybe they don't really have any knowledge of hypospadias and they just want a little bit more information. But generally we fix kids before a year. Um, undescended testes, um, um, talks about what happens uh, in the embryo. 80% are palpable. They're somewhere along the inguinal canal. 20% are non-palpable. Others, 20%, 25 are absent. Um, the one thing we don't do, we often see kids who with undescended testicles come to us with an ultrasound, and an ultrasound really is not helpful. We know kids don't get radiation with an ultrasound, but it's the one thing, really, you can just send kids who have an undescended testicle. You, they don't need any any ultrasounds or any, any workup. Here's an example that shows all the positions the testicle can be in. So the abdominal ones are the ones you can't feel. These are the one that 20% of the time, they're just not a good testicle, but you still have to go in and prove it. Um, most of them are inguinal. So all the places that it, that it can be. The important thing to know about an undescended testicle is um, even if they, they lose one testes, their fertility is still good. And when they are past puberty, we can put a prostatic testicle in that doesn't have the same risk as like a breast implant if it's bothersome to, of course, you know, we teach everyone to do scrotal exams. Um, the risk of cancer is theoretical because we, we fix them. We know we don't, we don't leave one testicle in the abdomen. When one side is fixed, they always put the scope through and they pexy the other side, because if you're going to be in the scrotum, you, you, you'll just pexy down both of them. Uh, oh, here we go. Diagnosis. Uh, renal, uh, a scrotal ultrasound is not indicated. Uh, when, when should you send a patient if they're non-palpable, six months, if they're palpable, nine months? Um, well, sometimes we do do um, a small dose of HCG. But usually they're kids that have um, uh, mixed genitalia. So we're, um, we're trying to sort out in the early period, is it an ovary, is it a testicle? Um, here is um, uh, laparoscopically looking in and seeing an abdominal testicle and looking um, 
at some structures to identify where it where it might be. Here is um, they're taking this out a really a not atrophic, not a good testicle. So that's what they're showing us here. And here they're showing us there's a, a population that has a looping bass, which just makes the, the uh, surgery a little bit more technically difficult. Retractable testicles, sometimes we see kids who are a little bit older. And generally, if they have had um, good, good scroll exams, they're generally, as we say, retractable testicles. And there is some literature that kids who have a female provider have a higher risk of being sent to urologists for an undescended testicle. You know, there's things like what's the temperature in the room? Is the child nervous? Um, but usually we can examine a kid. I usually examine a kid and put them in a frog position and then make my hands really, really, really warm. So our little test is even if the, scrot the scrotum is in the high testicle, if you bring it down to the low testicle and take your hands away and go back, can it be, can it be stayed? Can, will it stay down? And, um, and if it's a yes, it, it doesn't need to be, to be fixed. Hernias and hydroceles, uh, we know that there is a little septum between the inguinal area and the abdominal cavity that closes at birth. If it does not, fluid can move between it. Uh, thus, you can get a hydroceal. Bowel can come down. You can get a hernia. Um, talks about when to fix them. Generally, if a kid has a hernia, it's usually recognized by family. It's usually a diagnosis um, that the family will come in. And now cell phones are great. They usually bring pictures. We usually fix a hernia pretty, pretty quickly, and just because there's a risk that it can incarcerate. So we just give the family a lot of education. If the child is fussy, if they're constipated, they really need to open the diaper and look. And if it can't be made smaller or reduced, they need to present to an ER. Um, so those are just probably patients that deserve a little, a little phone call that they're sending a kid and we'll, we'll get them in to be seen. I think the wait list for an appointment is, it's something crazy, like six months and we're booked out a year for surgery. So, so a lot of phone calls go a long way. Incidents, uh, we see a lot of um, hernias on premature babies. Uh, Ped surgery, there's a little bit of overlap. Ped surgery usually fix babies that are premature. We tend to fix older kids. Here they're talking about um, the incidence of the right, left, bilateral. Uh, we see girls with uh, inguinal hernias. It's, it's of course a little bit rare, but it, um, we do see females that have uh, a bulge. If you don't see it in the office, if the parent tells you, I only really see it when the child's really crying or really straining, you know, usually you can make a kid uh, cry or hold their breath or blow in their face. Um, so you can get that valve salva. Or I tell kids sometimes, pretend you're going underwater and you're holding your breath and you'll see it um, get big. Uh, risk factors, prematurity, intersex hypospadias. Uh, sometimes there's an associated undescended testicle. Um, females, of course, can have hernias. Uh, diagnosis. If, if you see a bump and it's usually a parent um, reported complication, you can have incarceration. That's why we give the families a lot of education. If uh, it can't be easily reduced or it's red, they need to get to an emergency room. I could see I probably have about five minutes, huh? Risk of incarceration is higher in premature babies. Um, well, what do we do if a kid comes in with a um, hernia that can't be, palp uh, can't be retracted? Well, we might give the kiddo a little bit of sedation and put some pressure 
and try and reduce it and maybe take them to the OR in the morning and admit them. Uh, risk factors about hernias, I'm gonna sort of this. Uh, hernias are usually fixed sooner than later. Here you can see the um, hemostats are showing, they're ligating the actual hernia sac on this baby. Here they're dissecting the hernia sac. Labial adhesions, one of the things we see, it used to be, a, we used to treat every labial adhesion. The urine really manages to find its way out. And it's rare that, that you need to do a surgery. And you can see this little girl has some uh, absorbable sutures. Really rare, just one of the things we see. Um, we often even don't treat it. Sometimes you'll see it on a toilet training kid that's having a little bit of gripping that posterior, you can see it, it's still fused. We might have them sit backwards on the toilet, double void. Other things we see, neurogenic bladder, multicystic kidney, cloacal abnormalities. Certainly we take care of kids at Shriners. We do lots of um, diversions, bladder augmentations. We also treat bowel if it's neurogenic in kids. Um, some of this I'm just gonna go through because it just talks about way, oh, ways to repair things. So we see a ton of things, but I just really tried to focus on the surgical things we see the most. But we certainly see lots of wedding, bedwetting, circumcision, incontinence, lots and lots of pediatric issues. So really, that's, that's sort of my little overview about pedurology. Does anyone have any questions? Hey, Paula, why don't you take the uh, screen share off so we can bring okay. up our, our panelist. Okay, there we go. That was a great Not presentation, by the way. Not one question? <laughs> Thank you for that presentation, Paula. That was amazing. I see some of your patients in the adult world. Um, so that was very interesting. Can you explain a VCUG for some of the participants who are newer to urology? Yep. So a VCUG is the one x-ray that you should have a pediatric radiologist because it does matter. It has to be a complete VCUG with a filling and avoiding. So VCUG does not require any sedation. The pediatric radiology actually does the VCUG. They typically will put um, a six French catheter in a baby and quickly fill the bladder and you can see reflux during filling. And it's just a diagnostic if you have it during filling that it's harder to outgrow and takes you longer to outgrow. And then when the child, so they fill the child's bladder with um, cystographin and to a capacity or when the child starts to void and they pull the catheter out and take images during the kid urinating. So a VCUG will tell us a couple of things. It'll tell us if you have reflux and there is something that boys get called posterior urethral valves where they have a little bit of tissue in the urethra that normally sort of gets absorbed before birth and it can create an obstruction and the valves need to be ablated. So the VCUG also shows us really good pictures of the urethra, but it's the one x-ray, the ultrasound doesn't matter, but it's the one diagnostic test that really um, needs a pediatric radiologist. Peds radiology has a tilt table. So when child kids urinate for bigger kids, they'll tilt them up once they're full so they can urinate. I think they also have child life present, but it doesn't hurt. We all know catheterizing a kid doesn't hurt. Um, Usually it's mostly babies that get VCUG. Even older kids that come over, you'll ask them, how was your VCUG? They're like, no problem. So of course, explaining to them what's gonna happen because it, they, they do clean their genitals and put a catheter in. But we get a lot of questions about sedation. 
kids do not need to be sedated. Actually, we don't sedate kids because it can alter the effects of a VCUG. It can change when they urinate and the bladder compliance. And we do I, have some, say, some, I don't think uh, Pete's radiology has ever not been able to place a um, little, little catheter, a drippy stent or a small little six French catheter, a coude cath. So I, I know we hear that a lot. People will say, you know, I presented an ER and they couldn't get a catheter in. And, you know, we, we know that you, every child can be catheterized. I mean, you know. Thank you. Do you, you. Guys use uh, feeding tubes for catheters? Uh, no, no, we uh, use, um, usually kids can accommodate an eight French. We might use a feeding tube on a baby in the NICU, a premature baby. And we do drippy stents. Um, with, even with hypospadias, we use Folaseal catheters. Are you familiar with Folaseal? Nope. Folaseal is great because with hypospadias, when you take the catheter out at the meatus, um, they'll sometimes have some bleeding even if you take down the balloon, because you know when you take down the balloon, how it'll have those rough ridge edges, a folaceal is a catheter that is smooth. You, it, it has a balloon that you blow up, but when you take down the balloon, it's smooth. Folaceal catheters cost a little bit more, but they're also good for a patient who has a suprapubic tract that you're trying to upsize them. We sometimes have interventional radiology put a suprapubic tube in an adult who really is not healthy enough to go to the OR, they might put a 14 French catheter in for a suprapubic. So with time, we upsize the person. So it really helps if they have any stenosis at the skin level to get through that stenosis and then it lets you upsize them. So we use a lot of Folaseal catheters because it just really helps postoperatively. Does anyone else uh, use Folaseals? Um, I do have a couple of comments that came in from the, the attendees, Neil Smith, Stated excellent presentation, very informative. Thanks, Paula. So, thanks for that follow up. Um, and Rebecca Strickland, Strickland said, For undescended testicles, is there a timeline for how soon it should be repaired? There was a lot of information for one talk. We should have you come back for more in depth talk. I yeah. agree with that one. It'd be great to have yeah. you come back and do a deep dive on some of these subjects. Yeah. Well, you know, I think what even works better is people just asking questions because if most people see adults and are just sort of kind of want to know the basics or have some questions like what's the AAP stance on uh, getting a urine or reflux or because it, it's just hard to know. Um, what, what people's experience, like a lot of people maybe never will see a kid. So undescended testicle, we like to fix undescended testicle between six to nine months. We do see older kids that come in with a, a non-palp test or a testicle that's in the inguinal canal that they're quite tall and older. So they might have a two-stage repair. The first stage repair, you might bring the testicle with some collateral circulation down in the inguinal area. And the second stage, come back six months later and bring it in the scrotum. We've also placed the testicle, you guys have probably seen this, uh, for kids who are gonna have radiation in the, the pelvic area, we've also put the testicles in the inguinal folds in the, in the thigh, um, and then later taken them out of the thigh and put them back in the scrotum for anybody who's gonna be radiation, radiated in the pelvic area. But I mean, there's just so many things we do in pedurology. We've used, um, we've taken a, um, a, a tube an ec from a, um, a ectopic, a tube that really on one side 
and used it to create a catheterizable uh, channel. We take in a fallopian tube. So we do all kinds of things to improve people's quality of life. And, you know, we, we just do so much in pedurology. It's hard to even, you know, to even know what, what to talk about because it's so much. Yeah. One of the, the thoughts I had was I was listening through this because it brought back a lot of uh, memories. But uh, for those nurses that are out there considering certification, a lot of this was a great review of what you need to know for the test, for the certification, the pediatric side. So I thought it was a great presentation. And, you know, again, a lot of information, a lot of, I know that a lot of the stuff we could take a deep dive on is uh, in the future. I'm glad to always welcome that. Yeah. Uh, again, if you have any questions for Paula, this is your chance to yeah. go ahead and submit I think those. the important thing is if you have a child who needs a surgery, I think having surgery at a university hospital, there are a lot of adult urolog urologists who on their business card will say P urology, but they're not fellowship trained. They haven't done a fellowship. And so if it was my kid, I really think kids are care better cared for at a hospital where they have pediatric anesthesia. And if you have a kid with bladder extrophy or Vodder syndrome, we do combined clinics with peds nephrology, with endocrinology. We have a neuropsychologist part of our team. And so it really, it really requires a whole, a whole team of people to do ped urology. That's, that's a good point. Uh, John Lynn said it hundred percent agrees. John Lynn is a, a general practice urologist out of Arizona and I have to say you're, you're, you're dead on, um, you know, go to a place that has pediatrics period, because as you said, you're looking at pediatric anesthesiology, pediatric radiology, and pediatric, uh, surgeon. Those, those are specialties that are designed to handle kids. Yeah. But I, but I think kids are easy. I mean, I would, I would, I see adults two days a week. I would a hundred percent rather see kids than, than adults, a hundred percent. And I'm glad you do. <laughs> I remember giving those testosterone injections for uh, high, the undescended testicles mm -hmm. yeah. and, and for hypospadias to help build up. And, oh, that was a question I was going to have. Um, I seem to recall something. When you see somebody with hypospadias, those are the patients that they normally recommend don't get circumcised, correct? Right. Every, okay, yeah, exactly. Because we use the foreskin. Now that brings up a good point. What often will happen, we have a lot of pediatricians who call us and say, I'm doing a circumcision and the kid has a funny meatus. And we say, send us a picture. And they have a mega meatus. And we say, go ahead and finish the circumcision because that kid is never gonna ever need to be repaired. But not that you can't, the, the other thing I really didn't talk about is we also do free grafts from the inside of the mouth and pedurology. And we, so let's say a kid was circumcised. They come to you from somewhere else and they're, they're circumcised. Or let's say they're, they've had a hypospadias repair five years ago and now they have an, a fistula. Well, we use lots of free grafts from the inside of the mouth, but, uh, but usually kids <clears throat> aren't circumcised um, because they look circumcised when, they, when they're born. So usually it's, it's pretty clear that they have hypospadias. Yeah, good point. Um, I had a question as far as x-ray goes. Um, I know that there was a study out that I'm aware of about the uh, use of x-ray, especially in younger people that down the line, there's an increased risk of different cancers showing up. And I'm assuming that's why you choose IVP over CT scan because of less radiation. 
Yeah, and we uh, uh, Peds your Peds radiology. We also have an interventional radiologist who does low dose radiation, and so um, yeah, so we do a lot of I, we do a lot of IVPs. We it's rare we see kids that come to us with CTs. If I was if you were going to do a CT, you would probably do a CT urogram versus a plain mm. a CT with dye if you had your druthers. But a lot of kids will will who have abdominal pain or who present with a UPJ during adolescence will present to emergency room and get a CT scan. Cause you know, they don't know, is it torsion of your ovary? Is it appendicitis? You know, and probably if you see an older kid with belly pain, probably the provider in the emergency room isn't necessarily thinking neurological stuff. I mean, we, we would be, but they might go, Oh gosh, I didn't expect to find this. I have a big dilated kidney here. Or would you follow up? Follow-up be more ultrasound versus x-ray after surgery or? Yeah, yes, yes. It's even rare if a kid is fixed. If, if, if a kid is fixed for reflux surgically, it's about 99.9% effective. For deflux, depending on the grade of reflux, if you go to their website, it's one of my favorite websites. Sometimes we do deflux twice or you, you, you double, double sting a patient uh, depending on the amount of reflux they have. But it's rare that we we do a VCUG post-op. Unless they really have febrile infections, we might do one. But but yeah, we mostly follow kids with ultrasounds. And it's nice because we show the family like every we show the family every film. You guys probably do that as well. You pull up the film and you say, This isn't this is a CT. It cuts you like a bread loaf, and you go through it and show the patient. Absolutely. Uh, France, Fran Foley sent in a comment for you. I've been grateful for pediatric nurses also. Thank you. So. <laughs> oh, it's so funny. I, I don't like adults, but I see adults. That's why there's all sorts of us out here. Yeah. Because yeah. it's, you're probably thankful for the adults who have to deal with, or the, the adults, the people who deal with adult patients. And we're thankful for the people who deal with the pediatric patients. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, you, you know, what's interesting. I don't think in my whole 25 years, I've ever had a problem with, an, with a parent even. I think as long as you really explain things, we draw pictures. If they're inpatient, I say to them, lots of teams come through, have a, a, a piece of notebook paper, have people introduce themselves, write themselves their name down. Don't let people pull your covers off your kid. Who are you? You know, it, it's just, it just seems like it's kind of common sense stuff, but. Yeah, we were having a discussion. I don't know if it was at after hours or when we did it, but we were talking about the, the doctors who like to write on the table paper, draw pictures on, oh. on table paper. To... Yeah. Well, we, we put it in the chart. We take a picture, you know, you can take a picture from your phone and it's scanned right to the chart. So everybody can, can see it. You know, I think the biggest thing is people's resistance sometimes to see a nurse practitioner. And this is why I love the pediatric um, urologist. Like, let's say I see a kid for bedwetting or, you know, I do all the peristine teaching let's say the parent is adamant about seeing a pediatric urologist. Well, we have clinic next to each other, like, cause I'll grab him sometimes for patients. He'll grab me. So he'll go in and say to the patient, Oh, your kid is here for bedwetting. I don't know anything about bedwetting. Let me get the NP. She knows everything about bedwetting. And so I also think it's really great. And it also probably happens in the adult service. You might see a prostatectomy for continence for uh, sexual function. I love that the attending says, no, you're going to see the NP follow-up. The NP knows, or you're going to see the nurse. The nurse does all the teaching. The nurse knows. So I think 
you know, having the attending really support you and your expertise and your knowledge is also really helpful. Yeah, I agree. I think that the collaborative practices can't be beat. It's the best thing for patient care. And I think a strong physician supporting, as you just said, saying, hey, listen, my nurse is that expert. You need to see my nurse. And admitting that they're they're not the ones that are just going to spend the time with the teaching, et cetera, um, makes a huge difference. And patients, I think, appreciate it too. I think I've always found, I think patients feel like they can understand what the nurse is saying, but they think they can't understand doctor talk. Yeah. So yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's true. It, it is a great thing to have. Um, and my last comment uh, before we end is uh, cell phones. What a difference it's made in, in our practice. The ability of people to take pictures and, and show us. And sometimes it's like overshow us. You get all these pictures sent to you. Um, I'm sure most of us that are nurses out there and have grandkids are getting pictures for their, their kids. Hey, dad, what's this? Hey, mom, what's this? And you get all these different rashes. <laughs> for me, yeah. it's like the rash of the week with nine grandkids. But uh, it, it's made a big difference. I think it's a positive difference, too. Yeah. On the adult side, I always ask the adult for permission because, you know, it's scanned under their media mail. So whether they show up in the ED or GI, well, they might put a big picture up of their labia. And, I, you know, if it's medical people, we're looking for a reason. But I, a woman who gave me permission later then sent medical records this big note about she wanted it taken out of her chart and medical records asked me and I'm like, well, I can't, I can't take it out of her chart. It's part of her history. I mean, I, it, it was just crazy, but yeah. Yeah. Oh, great. Really appreciate your talk. And, and actually that leads to our next thing, which is our, our next week's talk. We're going to be having Anthony Sam. Anthony Sam is a uh, defense attorney for malpractice. So he's going to be talking on how we can minimize our risk of malpractice in lawsuits. Um, definitely the time to come back and, have any legal questions that you might ask. Anthony Sam's a great speaker and was real happy to volunteer his time for Euronurse to do this. So uh, we can ask a little bit about those pictures and and uh, down the line what the legality of that is. Um, for those of you that can't get enough, again, feel free to hit that red button on Euronurse.com. says after party because it is a party. So if you want to come back, uh, have any other questions that you want to talk about or anything uh again as we've we've covered everything up to including buying a car so all things are on for the after party <laughs> buying a car really we did we we got oh, one wow. of our attendees who got advice and she actually sent me a picture of the car she bought so yeah we do everything at the after party <laughs> so if you want to hang out and and uh just talk about whatever it's going to open the after party um Hope to see everybody next week. Janine Foster threw in a comment. Hey, thank you very much. So you got lots of thank yous coming in here. So uh, it was a great presentation. Again, glad to have you on. I would uh, hope maybe we can bring you on in the future again, maybe do a deeper dive into some of these pediatric uh, things in particular. Uh, that's really what we try to do with Euronurse is to take that deep dive into subjects. For those of you that are in the cold climates, enjoy that cold weather and snow. Those of you that are in the West Coast, you finally got your water you wanted, right? <laughs> and for the rest of you, we'll see you next week for that great talk on the legal problems that you can get into with what we do for a living. Hey, everybody. Uh, thanks, panelists, for showing up. As always, can't do the show without you. It's been great. And we'll see everybody who wants to see us in the, the uh, after party. Goodbye for now. Goodbye.
Bye-bye. Thank you, Paula. Thanks, everyone. You're welcome.